The sermon text for this evening is, first, is John, pardon me, the Gospel of John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. John chapter 1, pardon me, John chapter 1, verses 19, what is the sermon text? John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34, that is correct. Would you give your full attention now to the reading of God's holy word? And this is the testimony of John when the priests, pardon me, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. They said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they have been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the Word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we enter the time of the reading and the preaching of Your Word, we ask that You, by Your Spirit, might make it an effectual means of salvation for Your elect people. Grant us, we pray, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved, this evening we continue our series through the Gospel according to John. Thus far, if you remember, we've been introduced to the book, and we've covered the prologue in which the evangelist identifies the Son, in verses 1 through 5, and then introduces a witness to the Son, in verses 6 through 8, a divided response to the Son, in verses 9 through 13, and the redemptive mission of the Son by way of His enfleshment or incarnation, in verses 14 through 18. In our text for this evening, we leave the prologue, we leave that introduction behind in order to enter into the body of the gospel, specifically the first half of the body, which has traditionally been called the book of signs. 
The book of signs runs from chapter 1 in verse 19 to chapter 11 in verse 57. So all the way through chapter 11. And it covers seven of the miraculous signs Jesus performed as a manifestation of His messianic glory during His public ministry. The evangelist's narration of Jesus' public ministry begins much the same way as the other evangelists with the testimony of John the Baptist. As we've already seen in verses 6 through 8, John was sent from God as a witness to bear witness about the light, that is, the incarnate Son of God, that all might believe through Him. In other words, John was sent from God as a prophetic herald to announce the nearness of Messiah's coming and to identify Him in His coming. In John's overall testimony, we find two distinct declarations. We find a denial and an affirmation. John denies that he's the Messiah or the Christ. And he affirms that Jesus is the Christ. And coupled with these declarations, we find him highlighting Jesus' full deity as the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we'll divide our text this evening into two sections. The first Verses 19 through 28, where we see John denies that he is the Christ. And then second, verses 29 through 34, where we see John affirms that Jesus is the Christ. So let's begin in that first section there, verses 19 through 28, where John denies that he is the Christ. Look at verses 19 through 23 again. The text says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. As we've already noted, John the Baptist was sent from God as a witness. As a witness. And the work of a witness is to bear testimony. And thus we hear in these ver verses the testimony of John. Now on this particular occasion, John's testimony was given, the text says, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. And so the evangelist uses the term the Jews throughout his gospel to refer to various groups. Sometimes that term the Jews refers to the old covenant church as a whole. For example, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman in chapter 4 of John's gospel that salvation is from the Jews. Clearly there he means the old covenant church. Now, other times it refers to Israel's religious leaders, particularly those men who served on the high council, known as the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. That council included 70 elders and two priests. These are the men who eventually conspire to murder the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the men that the evangelist now has in view when he refers to a group called the Jews. Those men who sat on the high council in Jerusalem sent 
priests and Levites from their home base in Jerusalem to inquire of John the Baptist as John ministered his baptism out in the wilderness. But who were the priests and Levites? Well, the priests were sons of Aaron who were set apart to hold the office of the priest. The Levites were men from the tribe of Levi who were set apart to support the work of the priests at the temple. These were the men who were supposed to be well-trained in the Holy Scriptures. They were the regular teachers of God's law in Israel. And since the days of Jeremiah, as we've already seen in our morning series through Jeremiah, the relationship between those temple leaders and the prophets that God had sent to them had been strained. And since the arrival of the Romans in the Promised Land about 90 years earlier, those temple leaders had remained on high alert for the rise of any rebellion, any popular rebellion among the people that might upset the present order. To be sure, they along with all the Jews uh, did not welcome Roman rule. But at least the Romans afforded them the religious freedom to continue their temple services. Therefore, they kept close watch over anyone who might spark such an uprising and therefore upset the status quo, upset the current order. John the Baptist was such a person. Many were flocking to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had a message that was very similar to the Old Covenant prophets. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. They're concerned John might lead a popular uprising that might lead to their their losing their place, their position, their power in the land. The high council sends these priests and Levites to find out who John thinks he is. And so they begin by asking him, who are you? But instead of telling them who he is, John begins by telling them who he isn't. Ultimately, it's not important who John is. What's important is what John was sent to do. He confesses, I am not the Christ. Isn't that very interesting? He knows. He knows that's their concern. I am not the Christ. That makes sense. After all, the biggest concern of the religious religious leaders was to watch out for anyone who claimed to be the Messiah. Many such false messiahs had already come. Many more would come after Jesus' public ministry, as Jesus Himself warns His disciples. And in each case, they led political uprisings against the Romans. But John is clear. I am not the Christ, he says. And so his interrogators continue asking, what then? Are you Elijah? Of course, that question is rooted in the teaching of Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. That text says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So their concern seems to be that if John thinks he's Elijah, then he may eventually find his Messiah as Malachi Malachi says, and lead a rebellion. 
But while Jesus will later identify John as Malachi's Elijah, he is the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. John doesn't seem to have made that connection about himself quite yet in his own ministry. And so they ask, are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? Now that question is rooted in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. And in that text, you remember, the prophet Moses, as he gives his final sermon, it's like a farewell address to the people of God just before they enter the promised land. He says, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet for you, or pardon me, raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. The Jews rightly believed that this was a prophecy ultimately about a special end times figure, whether the Messiah himself or another. Of course, it is about the Messiah, and John's going to return to that in his gospel. But John again responds saying, no, no, I'm not the prophet. And so they return to their original question, one can imagine, with some amount of exasperation at this point, asking, who are you? And they explain, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So these men are under authority. They must report to their superiors about the success or failure of their mission. And they were sent to ascertain who John thinks he is. But so far, all he's told them is who he isn't. And so John finally quotes Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 to identify himself, saying, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. That is who John thinks he is. That's who John knows he is. He is that one who cries out in the wilderness, saying, Make straight the way of the Lord. You know, in ancient times, whenever a king would tour the cities of his kingdom, he would send a messenger or a herald before him to announce his coming so that the proper preparations might be made for his reception. But typically that reception happened in the cities of the land where there was some amount of civilization. Oftentimes the largest amount of fanfare, adulation, would happen in the capital city, the royal city. You can think here of David returning from his victories against his enemies and the people of God rejoicing at his return. He sends heralds before him, make straight the way for King David. Prepare the way that he might ride triumphantly back into his city. He has gone out to war and he is coming back home. But what makes Isaiah's prophecy so remarkable is the herald is sent to the wilderness. The wilderness. Where there is no civilization. Where there are no cities. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. In the wilderness? Who is the king of the wilderness? 
And of course, the king of the wilderness is Almighty God. He's the one who rules over all things. So just as the Lord Jesus came into the world and the world did not know Him, came to His own people and they did not receive Him, so he is, His herald goes into the wilderness as a picture of the fallenness of the world into which, into which the Father sent His incarnate Son to be that messianic king over His people. John the Baptist was sent into the wilderness to announce the coming of the Son of God, the coming of the Messiah, to make all things new. Look at verses 24 through 28. The text says, Now they have been sent from the Pharisees. They asked Him, Why then are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The evangelist now drops the parenthetical note that John's interrogators have been sent from the Pharisees. Now the word... Pharisee refers to a politico-religious party among the Jews. They were the spiritual descendants of those groups that had successfully opposed the Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, the man who attempted to wipe out the Jewish religion during his rule from about 170 years earlier. They were very scrupulous about observing every detail of the law such that they developed a lengthy oral tradition adding detail upon detail about how exactly the law should be kept. The Apostle Paul was formerly a Pharisee. And as he attests in his letters, they misunderstood the spiritual nature of the law and used the law unlawfully, thinking that it was a means by which they might be justified before God. And thus Jesus condemned them as self-righteous hypocrites. These are the men, the Pharisees who sat on the high council who have sent the priests and the Levites to interrogate John about his identity and his work. And so they ask him why he is baptizing if he isn't the Christ, if he isn't Elijah, if he isn't the prophet. What is this baptism, this ministry of baptism that he's performing if he's none of those figures. And don't miss that, beloved. Don't miss that. Oftentimes, it's interesting what the text doesn't say, what the text assumes. Is baptism an exclusively new covenant reality? Well, no. Obviously not. If it was, then these men wouldn't have asked John what he, or pardon me, these men would have asked John what he was doing before they asked him why he was doing it. But they didn't do that. They don't ask him what he's doing. They already know what he's doing. They're very familiar with ritual washings. And that's what baptism is. It is a ritual washing. There were many such ritual washings prescribed in the old administration of the covenant with which these priests and Levites were obviously quite familiar. And so their question isn't what, but why. Why? 
Why are you baptizing, John? And notice John's answer. It's not direct. He doesn't actually tell them why he's baptizing. He simply affirms that he does baptize and then again points them to Jesus, who he'll describe later in verse 33 as baptizing with the Holy Spirit. In other words, what John is saying is that while the washing or or cleansing that he performs through water baptism is merely ceremonial, the cleansing that Jesus will perform, the King for whom He has been sent into the wilderness to herald His coming, that King, that cleansing that Jesus will perform is spiritual. But before comparing their respective works, via their different baptisms, he begins with a comparison of their persons. Saying, among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now throughout this gospel, John the Baptist defers to Jesus. He always defers to Jesus. After all, that's what he was called to do. That's what the Father sent him into the world to do. He was sent from God to bear witness about the light. So John begins his testimony of Jesus by describing him as standing among them. He is standing among them, he says. Now, does he mean that Jesus was actually there listening to their conversation? That's certainly possible. But it could also just be his way of telling them that the Messiah has already come. In other words, it could be really just another way of saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Make straight the way of the Lord. Whatever the case, the point is what he says next. Namely, one you do not know. Though he's among you, though he's here, you don't know him. This will be a consistent theme throughout John's Gospel. Many will see Jesus. They will see His miracles. They will hear testimony from Jesus about His own identity. And yet still, they will not know Him. They will refuse to believe in Him. As chapter 1, in verses 10-11 through said, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. John further testifies of Jesus, describing Him as, He who comes after Me. Now here he has the timing of Jesus' public ministry in view. John was sent ahead of Jesus to herald His coming, and therefore Jesus' public ministry must follow John the Baptist's public ministry. But just because it follows John the Baptist's ministry doesn't mean it's subordinate to or lesser than in any way. In fact, it's quite the opposite. John continues saying, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now this attitude of deference to Jesus marked John's whole ministry. And so later in verse 30, he says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me, which is a repetition of what the evangelist told us back in verse 15, 
And again, later in chapter 3 and verse 30, John teaches his disciples saying, He must increase, but I must decrease. John understood that his ministry was subordinate to Jesus' ministry because he himself is subordinate to Jesus. That's why he speaks of Jesus as one, quote, the strap of whose sandal he is not worthy to untie. In other words, he is in the position of a student to his teacher or a slave to his master when compared to Jesus. In fact, he's in the position of a creature to his creator. And that brings us to the second section. Verses 29 through 34, where we see John affirms that Jesus is the Christ. John affirms that Jesus is the Christ. Look at verse 29. The text says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So having narrated John's denial that he was the Christ, The evangelist now narrates his affirmation that Jesus is the Christ. In the previous verse, we learned that these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. That's not an insignificant detail. It's important for us to remember that these are actual historical moments. The Christian religion is not a religion based on myth, but it is historical. It's God's own account and interpretation of His works of creation and providence with a special focus on that work of special providence that we call redemption. And the centerpiece of that work is the sending of His Son into the world for our salvation. So on a particular day, a day just like you experience today in many ways, the sun came up, the sun went down, the birds flew through the air. On a particular day in the history of this creation, 2,000 years ago, as John was standing in the wilderness, likely near the Jordan River, performing his ministry of baptism, preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. The next day, after having been interrogated by the religious leaders from Jerusalem, John, lifted up his eyes and saw what no prophet from the time of the fall of humanity had the privilege of seeing. Not even Moses. John lifted up his eyes and saw the incarnate Son of God. Jesus of Nazareth. Can you you imagine that for just a moment? I hope you long to see Christ. Don't construct images of Him in your mind. Don't construct images of Him on paper or anywhere else. Lest you break the second commandment. But I hope you nonetheless long to see Him. I hope that thought goes through your mind often as you live your life and go through the ups and downs of life in a fallen world, as a sinner in a fallen world. 
Can you imagine the joy of seeing the incarnate Son? The Messiah God sent for your salvation. The one who is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, in human flesh. Not just seeing him, but being able to walk up to him, gaze upon his face, see his smile, feel his embrace. That's what awaits us, beloved. That's what awaits you if you've trusted in him. And here is John out in the wilderness having just been interrogated by men who don't love him at all. Who are concerned that perhaps he's going to stir up a rebellion and then the Romans are going to take their power. Here is John the next day in the same wilderness and who is coming to him? But the incarnate Son of God. The Word made flesh. And John doesn't just see Jesus from afar. He doesn't just see Him way over there and say, oh, I see Him. He's over there doing something. No. Notice what the text says. He saw Him coming toward Him. Here is a man who embodies the whole prophetic witness of the Old Testament. John the Baptist, whose God-given mission has led him where? Out into the wilderness. To where, as the other evangelist tells us, to wear clothing made of camel's hair. That doesn't sound very comfortable. And to eat locusts and honey. The honey sounds okay. I don't know about the locusts. John is in the wilderness. This is where God has sent him. To, to perform his ministry in the wilderness. In the place of temptation and testing. In the place of travail and tribulation. Here is John standing as it were out in the wilderness where Adam and Eve were first expelled from the garden under the judgment of God for their sins. Where did he cast them? Into the wilderness. You can imagine as they left as they slunk away from the sanctuary of God, the garden sanctuary, they turn and they look back and they reflect upon all that they have lost in rebelling against the God who loved them and gave them everything and previously even communed with them. In fact, I like to think that in, God, in God's good providence, John was standing exactly where Adam stood in that moment thousands of years earlier when he turned back and saw the flaming sword and the cherubim guarding the way back into the special presence of God, the God's special dwelling place with a threat of judgment. And there he is in the wilderness looking out from that same place, perhaps in the same direction. But instead, he doesn't see the threat of judgment, but
but he sees the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell coming toward him. He sees the Word made flesh. God the Son tabernacling in the world as if He were any other man. He sees the eternally begotten Son from the Father in an estate of humiliation. In the wilderness with His people. And by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit in His own soul, He recognizes not only Jesus' identity, but His God-given messianic mission saying, Behold! Here He is! Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Whereas John, the Apostle's testimony about Jesus began with the divine glory of His person, you remember, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, being the only begotten Son from the Father, the Word who was with God and who was God in the beginning. John the Baptist's testimony begins with the humility of His work. Not the glory of His person, but the humility of His work. The Son did not come as a conquering lion. At least not yet. Not yet. But He came as a sacrificial lamb. Sacrificial lambs were used in various ways in Israel's cultic system, but the most prominent use was, of course, the Passover. The Passover was originally instituted by God during the Exodus. At that time, God afflicted Egypt with ten plagues because of the Pharaoh's impenitence. And the last of those plagues, you remember, was the killing of all the firstborn throughout the land. And on the night that God determined to send that plague down upon the Egyptians, He commanded each household among His covenant people to offer up a sacrificial lamb and to spread its blood on the doorposts of their houses. This was to be assigned to the angel of death so that, so that as the angel made his way through the land of Egypt, killing all the firstborn, he would see the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of Israel and pass over their homes, leaving their firstborn alive. This event was later memorialized in a yearly festival as Israel travailed in the wilderness. The Lord Jesus Christ offered Himself up on the cross during that very festival, during the festival of Passover. And thus He fulfilled all that the Passover anticipated. Just as the original Passover lambs died as substitutes, receiving the covenant curse of death that God's people deserve for their sins and thus provided atonement for their sins, so Jesus' blood does the same for all who believe in Him. And that's an important lesson to learn as we look at the Exodus. God's not saving Israel because they're special. He's saving Israel because they're covered by the blood. He has granted them His grace. In fact, the forgiveness that God's people enjoyed during the Exodus, during that Passover, wasn't actually purchased by they're sacrificial lambs. As Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 makes crystal clear, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
Their forgiveness was purchased by the blood of Christ, the true and final Passover lamb, who takes away not just the sins of the Jews, but the sins of the Gentiles as well. Indeed, the sins of the whole world. Again, that terminology, sins of the whole world in John's thought. It's important to remember the connection to the Passover. The blood of the Passover land covered the sins of whom? Israel. No one else. The blood of Christ covers the sins of not only the Israelites, not only Jews, but also Gentiles. Also the Egyptians, you see. The sins of the world. The whole world. Also, notice that John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Of God. Whereas the lambs of the original Passover in Egypt were lambs that were given from the people's own flocks. This lamb is different. This lamb is given from God Himself. He is the lamb that God gives from His own flock, so to speak, to be the final substitutionary atonement for the sins of the world. Verses 30 through 31 Look again at the text. The text says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. The evangelist now returns to what he reported back in verse 15. Though Jesus' public ministry begins after John's, that doesn't mean it's lesser than John's. It's not lesser but greater, as John himself testifies. But even so, John says, I myself did not know him. In other words, John was dependent upon the Spirit's illuminating work to identify Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He who comes, or pardon me, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. What we're going to learn as we make our way through John's Gospel is that that phrase there, he was before me, that's meant in an absolute sense. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son from the Father. Look at verses 32 through 34. We'll conclude. The text says, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, personal eyewitness, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. God. So John the Baptist continues his witness-bearing, his testimony with a focus on the end goal of Jesus' ministry. Jesus wasn't simply sent to die for the sins of His people, though He was sent to die for the sins of His people. He was sent to do something more. He was sent to purchase the gift of the Holy Spirit for His people. And so John now connects his own ministry of baptism with water to Jesus' ministry of baptism with the Holy Spirit. John's lesser baptism with water serves to signify, in a way, and anticipate Jesus' greater baptism with the Holy Spirit. John describes 
what he saw with his own eyes, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And then he tells us why he thought that was significant, saying, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In other words, God had previously revealed in some way to John that this would be the sign by which he would identify the Messiah. And that's why John again says, I did not know him. In other words, what John's saying is, I didn't discover the Messiah. I didn't identify the Messiah because I'm so smart. Because I'm so wise. Because I'm so perceptive. But instead what he's saying is, God revealed his Messiah to me by giving me this sign. He told me what to look for. And the sign that God gave to John makes perfect sense. After all, the word Messiah means anointed one. Anointed one. John describes Jesus' anointing with the Spirit as being like a dove. It's difficult to know exactly what he means by this. Did John literally see the figure of a dove descending upon the Lord Jesus? Or is he just appealing to the way that a dove descends? onto a branch like a metaphor for the anointing that he saw. Either way, either way, his point is that Jesus' reception of the Holy Spirit was unique. In the Old Testament, we see such anointings described as a kind of rushing upon. The Spirit rushed upon a person. And just as quickly as the Spirit rushes upon a person, He sometimes leaves them. But not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. Jesus' anointing appears almost natural. The Spirit descends upon Him gently like a dove descending upon a branch. There's a, there's a fittingness to this anointing that exceeds every anointing that preceded it. Such that the Spirit remains on Him. This is what the author of Hebrews means when he quotes Psalm 45, which was our first Scripture reading this evening. When he says this, but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved wickedness, or pardon me, loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, Your God, has anointed You with the oil of of gladness beyond your companions. And so the natural hand-in-glove kind of fit of Jesus' anointing points us to the truth that will be revealed later by the Lord Jesus in the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13 through 17, as He prepares His disciples for His death, burial, and resurrection. And what He teaches them there is that just as the Son is eternally begotten from the Father, so the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one God eternally existing in three persons. There's a, there's a natural unity in their diversity that's unique to God. And so John says, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. 
Only the Son of God can receive this kind of anointing. An anointing that's so natural. There's nothing unnatural about it. There's nothing supernatural, at least for Him, about it. It is hand in glove. It's because of the eternal procession of the Spirit from the Son that the Son is able to baptize His own people with the same Spirit. In other words, beloved church, what your God has done for you in the sending of His Son for you and the sending of His Spirit for you is He's given you Himself In the sending of His Son and Spirit, He's given you Himself. He has come to you. You could not come to Him, but He has come to you in the wilderness of this world to give Himself to you. And so I ask you, have you you received Him? Have you received Him? Have you trusted in Him? Have you come to the end of yourself that you might fling yourself upon His mercy? You might find grace to help in your time of need. Have you come to a place in which you marvel that one day faith will become sight and the Messiah who has loved you so well, the One who has freed you to love Him, and love others well. You'll see Him. You'll be like Him. This is our blessed hope, beloved. If there is no resurrection of the dead, we're all here for no reason. Rejoice that one day the resurrection is coming. Faith will be made sight. and We will all feel the embrace of our faithful Savior, the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give You thanks for the Lord Jesus. We thank You that He was indeed full of grace and truth. We thank You in His public ministry came in humility as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we pray as we look to Him by faith this evening that You might provoke within us a deep love for Him, a deep rejoicing in Him, a sweetness of fellowship with Him that transcends all earthly fellowship, all earthly beauty. Let us see with the eyes of faith, we pray, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And grant our Father that by the powerful working of the Spirit, we might follow after Him faithfully, giving ourselves unto Him. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.